Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin, though, with the story about Ontario and the electricity prices here. A crisis, certainly for rural Ontario. And I don't think the prognostication is particularly good for, or the prognosis is particularly good for the entire province, with the premier saying that she made a mistake. Now, we've been uh, covering the story for some time, but I'll tell you, Global News has done a magnificent job, absolutely magnificent job, of pursuing this story for months now. And they've covered so many angles of it and talked to so many people and interviewed so many individuals who are specifically and directly involved. And uh, this week there was a Global News story that indicates thousands of people in this province, 37,000 plus, are spending 30% of their household income on electricity. That is massive. That is massive. And for people who are at the low end of the economic scale, that's something that they find very, very difficult to afford. And you've heard them, you've heard people say on this program, they're choosing between food, they're choosing between heat and light, and they're choosing between rent because they cannot afford all three. So what's the government got in mind? With me is uh, Alan Carter from our Global News organization. And Alan, of course, is the anchor of Global News at 530 and 6 in uh, Toronto and the Queen's Park Bureau Chief and host of Focus Ontario. And at 530 this afternoon and then again at... um, 11.30 tomorrow morning on Global News Toronto, you'll hear and see Alan's interview with the energy minister for this province, uh, Glenn Tebow. But we'll get a little bit of a preview. Alan, thank you very much for taking the time. Well, thank you so much for having me on the program. So the Global News investigation of the electricity crisis in Ontario has resulted in the reconnection of service of some 1,400 Hydro One customers. That's great work. It was a great series of reports, as I said, which clearly placed the Premier and the government on the back foot, as well as Hydro One. What did you, before we talk about your conversation with the Energy Minister, what did you find most compelling and perhaps most disturbing in what Global News discovered about electricity pricing in this province? Well, uh, there are many facets to it. And, 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 you know, if, if you've been covering politics in this province for a while, you have seen, as many people have been seeing this, looming on the horizon for the last number of years as prices began to escalate more and more. And the government was actually warned as far back as the uh, Drummond report that the perfect storm was on the horizon. So it's not like we haven't seen it coming. But I think what really surprised a lot of us was what was happening in rural Ontario. And this is uh, due to some great work from uh, Shirley Engel uh, and the folks out of Ottawa who managed to get into the regions and find all these cases of people living without power, um, and, you know, and people who hadn't had a hot shower for five months, people who are lugging water in garbage bag-lined cans into the house to be able to survive. And then you look further into the situation, and you find things where, you know, that the 
um, the companies, the distribution companies, had had been very stringent in terms of saying, okay, well, well yeah, we're going to offer you this and that, but uh, here's a payment plan. In the one case of one family that we had documented, they they had a payment plan. They were working on getting their massive debt under um, under control, and they missed one payment for a couple of days, and basically Hydro One cut them off. And not only cut them off, and they had been one of the power for five months, but now, after five months, they were saying, okay, now we're going to come in there and we're going to take lines up. So, you know, not only do you have to pay us all the money you owe, but a whole lot more money to get reconnected. And I think when we put that on the air, I think people in this province said, this is ridiculous. How can this be happening in our own province? And Hydro One, which, as you know, is now being sold. It's funny. It, it's odd because the, I think Hydro One you know, basically has come out this week and said, well, like we said, we're going to, we're going to reconnect all all these people. We're going to rework on uh, all of their debt levels. But they've also come out and said, well, listen, we're under new management and we're much more customer focused because we're private. Um, So to take that for what you will in terms of the messaging to say, well, here's a here's an upside to the fact that we're selling off hydro one is it's going to be more responsive to customer needs. And I think there's an interesting, kind of messaging in there. You know, it's it was so disturbing, and you can almost see it incrementally, as people found out more and more about what was going on with their neighbors in the province. And we heard about uh, Donnell's supermarket just north of the Sioux. 5,000 square foot supermarket suddenly became a corner, or over a period of weeks, became a corner store because they couldn't afford the $8,000 a month hydro bill, which had been 2000 You hear, as you said, the individual families that find themselves cut off for months at a time. Just think about what it's like when you lose your power for a few hours. It's extremely disturbing to people. And you know it's going to come back on because it's a hydro problem. But now if it's been shut off and there's no prospect of your hydro coming back on, unless uh, arrangements are made, it's awful. It's disastrous for families. And then as you found out at uh, Global News, thousands of people in this province are really on the thin razor's edge because they're spending 30% of their household income on electricity. It's unsustainable. Rent, heat, hydro, uh, food, clothing, getting your kids to school, just maintaining a home. It's it's just not sustainable. So taking all of this and what you've explained to us, Alan, into, uh, into the uh, interview that you had with the energy minister, how did that go? Well, Glenn Tebow, um, and just a quick backstory on Glenn Tebow, you, you may know, and I think you probably discussed in your program the situation in the Sudbury by-election, how he came to be uh, in the wind government and on the front bench. He was an NDP MP right. who uh, decided to quit and change parties and run in a by-election in Sudbury. Um, and there's some, still some controversy over that and some uh, election act. Uh, charges for two people and the comments that Mr. Tebow himself had asked for something in order to uh, switch parties. So you have to ask yourself how much is that weighing on Glenn Tebow as he also now shoulders what is clearly the hot button file of the government. I mean, I put it to him straight up. You know, we, we're not that far from the spring of 2018, which is the next provincial election. How Glenn Tebow handles this file over the next year 
is going to basically determine whether or not Kathleen Wynne's government survives. So imagine the pressure on on him. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is what the government's done is they said, okay, we're going to we're going to bring in an eight percent right across the board cut, right? And that's a rebate that is uh, the equivalent of the HST, the provincial portion of the HST off. You build. Now, it's important to notice that that is not taking the HST off your bill. That is not even taking the provincial portion of the HST off your bill. They're rebating you an equivalent amount because they actually have to get Ottawa to sign off on it, and they have decided not to forego that. That's an important thing because it can be taken away fairly easily, right? The tax is still there. You're just getting that rebate. Right. But when we start talking about that percentage that you mentioned, about the people that are, uh, that are paying 30% or more, is that the government does have a low-income um, program. But I think they're going to st- start looking at more of that. They're going to have to get more money down on that bottom end because remember that eight percent across the board cut. That means that if I want to be Griswold this Christmas and just light my house up like a Roman candle that can be seen from space, you know, I get an eight percent cut on that, and you're Mister Conservation. You're helping to pay for my energy consumption. Exactly. Exactly. So. What can you tell us about the conversation that you had with the energy minister? How is he going to approach the next months heading into the election campaign? Because it's really going to begin long before, months before, the actual writ is dropped. Um, how's, how's he approaching things? Well, the reality is, and I put it to him a number of ways, uh, and you'll see it in the interview, eventually he admits that there are more increases coming. And that the big things that they've done, they've already done. Remember that 8% rebate? That's a billion dollars a year out of general revenue to be able to do that. Um, and so he's talking about, uh, you know, tinkering around the edges. If it's $5, if it's $50, the reality is they don't have any big, more big sledgehammers. And right now he's just in consultation phase. So everything's on the table, including um, increasing uh, relief for low income, um, whether they change the time of use policy, I think that's the one you're going to see. You're going to see something on, on, you know, the electrical pricing on time of day. Um, really, everything's on the table. The, the reality is, I don't think they really know what they could do. And then we add to this the fact that cap and trade becomes a reality in the province in just a few weeks on the first of January. So the Liberal government maintains it'll mean only about $5 a month increase for Ontario households on their electricity bills. But the question then is, how do you know? And how, you can, how can you predict? Because market fluctuations will affect pricing under cap and trade. And what happens in Quebec and California will affect Ontario, if I understand all of this properly. So there's another potential joker in the deck. Well, absolutely. And as we found out this week, the cap-and-trade costs on your home heating bill, if you're using natural gas, for example, you won't see it. Exactly. It's going to be rolled into the delivery charge. And this, here are the three letters that the people in this province, if they don't know them already, they are really going to get to know them over the next 18 to 24 months, and that is OEB, the Ontario Energy Board. And what it is is a quasi-judicial, arm's-length agency, which is set up... It is supposed to be uh, there to watch out for consumers' best interests. It sets prices for electricity. It sets prices for natural gas. It oversees the local distribution companies. And in the case of the, the cap-and-trade costs, 
the OEB said, well, we, we talked to the local distribution companies. We did some analysis. We looked at it. We think it's part of the overall cost. We're not going to put it up separately. Despite the fact that 75 out of 80 of the actual distribution companies said, no, no, I think you should put that separately on a separate line. And the Auditor General actually did polling in the province and found that 89% of us want it separate. But the OEB doesn't want it separate. And the government says, well, it's not up to us. That's that's not uh, that's arm's length stuff. It's not our decision. We can't do anything about it one way or the other. So the OEB works for them in that favor. But conversely, that 8% rebate that we were talking about on your electricity bill, guess what? That's going to have a line item on your bill because in the complicated world, which is our energy sector in this province, the government has the authority to do that. So the OEB tends to be a convenient cover for the government, and I think people are going to get more and more upset about it. Yeah, particularly if we get more and more reports from the Auditor General. Alan Carter, thank you so very much. Looking forward to your interview with Glenn Thibault, the Energy Minister, 5.30 this afternoon on Global News in Toronto, and 6 and, um, I'm sorry, 5.30 and then 11.30 tomorrow morning again. Thank you, Alan. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Francesca Dobbin is back with us, the Executive Director of the United Way for Bruce and Gray Counties. Um, Where are we now, Francesca, compared to where we were when we started talking, you and I, a a month or or two ago? Things better or things worse? Things are definitely better. Um, The changes that have happened this week um, in the last seven days have just been an incredible whirlwind uh, with Hydro One stopping disconnects, Hydro One going out and actively reconnecting the 1,400 people. And you had a lot to do with that. And uh, so that's a massive change. Um, they have a new staff person um, who's just doing incredible work in looking at these issues, uh, focusing on making the payment arrangement plans for paying down old debt, you know, reasonable and affordable. So we've seen some major changes in the last seven days. So when 20% of Hydro One's customers in Ontario, Francesca, use between 25 and 400% more of their available income for electricity than the anti-poverty group Low Income Energy Network recommends, and it should be between 6 and 8%, of total household income for heating and non-heating energy bills. For very low-income people, if they start to pay between 10 and 12% of their total household income on energy, they're going to have to make very difficult decisions. These are people you would be dealing with, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, just and what does very difficult decisions mean? Um, now they're going to the food bank um, because they've got to get the food from somewhere. They're going, you know... Do their kids enroll in sports? Um, are they buying birthday presents? Are they buying Christmas presents? Are they going to go and take a course to upgrade their skills to, to try and get that better job? Um, are they turning the heat on at all? Um, are they sitting in one room with just uh, a candle on, risking fire, and they've blocked off other rooms, so now it's getting moldy because there's no heat in other parts of the, uh, the house? Tons of different decisions. You, uh, in an email to me that you sent me the other day, on Thursday, you wrote, people didn't get behind because they just didn't feel like paying. The people we are helping simply can't afford it. And I understand, if I understand it correctly, you were surprised at the numbers of people who needed help. 
Yeah, I was really shocked when um, our, our local um, our reporters here with our, our local daily paper, the Owen Sound Sun-Times, um, were able to find out from Hydro One that there were 56 people in our households, in our community, that were totally disconnected. And I think I knew about four of them. So I was really surprised at that number because, uh, you know, I thought we had been able to get our message out there for people to call us and we would work and we would try and do and we would advocate and you know, we go through the couch cushions looking for funds um, to try and help people. So I was totally gobsmacked when I found out that there was 56 households in my community that had no power, and it's snowing. Bill 27. The bill that, again, quoting from your email, moves the power for disconnections to the OEB, the Ontario Energy Board, is stalled in committee. You're right. Why the heck... The PCs and the NDP couldn't pass it faster is beyond me, beyond me too. And I said earlier, and we spoke with Patrick Brown last weekend on this program, the Ontario PC leader. I'm not impressed with the PCs. I'm not impressed with the NDP. Uh, And clearly, the Liberals are the cause of the problem. So Bill 27, what do you want to say about that? Um, it was Bill 218 before the throne speech. It became Bill 27 after the throne speech. We've been trying to get this bill passed, um, you know, since we first found out about it back in the summer, um, because it does give power to the Ontario Energy Board over disconnections. We don't know what the Energy Board will decide. Um, they haven't, because they haven't been actually tasked with it yet, because the bill hasn't been passed. And our hope, though, is, because we've been communicating with them, that they will enact some kind of restriction that uh, either a full-blown moratorium on disconnects over the winter or there has to, you know, they have to connect with the OEB and ask permission to disconnect somebody before they can go and disconnect somebody. Or they have to call us and say, can you go and help these people? Have they access services? Are you aware of them before they can go and disconnect people? There's lots of different mechanisms beyond just don't, you know, don't disconnect. There are ways we can do that so that, you know, because we don't want people to say, oh, okay, I'll just save my money and pay it in March. You know, we understand that the companies have obligations as well, and they have businesses, but the low-income people for sure are not sitting here and deciding, well, I'm going to use my hydro money and go to Cuba for uh, a week instead. They're making the decisions of, you know, do I have breakfast today? Here's the human story. And it quotes you, and it's by Brian Hill, also of Global News. And Brian has done remarkable work, and I know he's interviewed you many times. He's awesome. Um, He writes, quoting you, this is an absolute crisis. We've talked to people who've had medical emergencies, a man who had a heart attack, who told our staff it would be financially better for his family if he'd passed away rather than survive the man's rationale is medical equipment uses too much electricity and pushed up the cost of the family's hydro bill. That's heartbreaking. It is. It was, I mean, my staff, I have amazing staff, and, and when somebody is talking to them and tells them that, you know, what do you do with that? When you're sitting in front of somebody who says, gee, I wish I died. It would have been better for my family if I had died because of their hydro bill. That just is incredible to me that somebody could be that desperate and that destitute that they wish they had not survived. Meanwhile, 
free overnight electric vehicle charging is coming into play. Ontario intends to establish a four-year free overnight electric vehicle charging program for residential and multi-unit residential customers starting in 2017. So we have a man who says, I wish I'd died of my heart attack. Because the, elect- the, the equipment, the medical equipment in my home to help me s- survive and get well is costing too much electricity. But the province is going to have a four-year free overnight electric vehicle charging program for residential and multi-unit residential customers starting in 2017. You know what, Francesca? It takes me back to a, a, a term I've been using for years, and it really applies. You can't outthink those who aren't thinking. Yeah. It's just, you know. It's awful. It's, it's incredible. It's awful. If, if, why not give people with CPAP machines equivalent free overnight so when they're sleeping and they've got their CPAP machine on, that their hydro's free? Now, why not? Yeah. Why not? But if you, if you go and buy yourself an electric car, they'll give you free hydro to charge it overnight. But the person with the CPAP machine, they got to pay. Yeah. And I mean, I understand this is about balancing power grids and stuff, and we need to use... No, no, it's about overnight. people. It's about well, people. Yeah, it's about people. It's about people. It's about a basic right. It's a human right. We talk a lot about human rights in this country, and governments love to say human rights are being violated here, there, and everywhere. Well, I would argue that the Ontario government has done a hell of a job in assaulting the human rights of people in this province who are low-income and rely on electricity and can't pay the bill because of the Premier's mistake. You're an amazing person, uh, Francesca. You really are. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Thank you. Really is. Um, Frances- oh, hey, Francesca. Yeah. Tell us again uh, the uh, the uh, where we can go online to to, to assist um, the United Way in Bruce and Gray counties. You can go online to um, www.donatetoday.ca. It's mobile friendly and make a donation to our community fund. That supports the work we do. Um, this takes a lot of time to work on all these energy projects, and it takes away from our fundraising abilities to do this. So. Anybody who's looking to make that year-end donation, um, you can go onto our, our general website, which is unitedwayofbrucegray.com, or go on donatetoday.ca and, and make a donation. And it really supports the work we do because it gives us the time to go and write these reports and have these ideas. And, you know, earlier you alluded to nobody having any ideas. They don't have any ideas because I get emails going, so what are your ideas? Um, do you know, do you know what it is? Do you know, do you know what the government's... I'll tell you what the government's interested in. It's interested in its own political survival far more than it is in the basic well-being of the people of the province who are struggling. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. I don't expect you to comment on that. Yeah, I, I can't no, comment don't, on don't, that. No, don't, don't do that. I know everybody is looking for that silver button. What's going to fix this? Yeah. Because I've had those emails and those questions yeah. in my office. Yeah. And I've spent my Saturdays writing out ideas and writing reports and, and making connections... You know, okay, so we need to talk about revenue side of things. Right. We need to talk about, uh, you know, how much money does somebody on disability get? And uh, all those pieces, what are those mechanisms? What are the rebate programs? Right. Who's eligible for these things? Thank you, Francesca, so much. All right, thank you. For all you do. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. 
German surgeon who has now operated on three Canadian pancreatic cancer patients who were refused IRE nanonife surgery in Canada. Our excuses given were doctors were untrained or it's an experimental treatment um, and their out-of-province um, health plans uh, did not, or at least the health plans, would not fund the out-of-province and out-of-country surgeries for Dwayne Eckert of Saskatchewan and Ontario Mayor Hector McMillan who's been on this program, and Sean uh, Eckert, uh, Dwayne's son, was on this program last weekend. Well, joining us now to speak about the surgeries that are taking place in Germany for Canadian patients is Dr. Matthias Bert. He's the medical director of the Helios Hospital in Stralsund in Germany. Dr. Bert, thank you so much for, for taking the time. How many nanonife pancreatic surgeries have you done, and what's the success rate? So at the moment, we have started two years ago, and we have treated uh, roughly more than 100 patients meanwhile. So the success rate is a little bit uh, hard to describe because uh, the run following the procedure is very short at the moment, but we still have some patients from the beginning two years ago which, which are still are cancer-free at the moment, or at least we, we do not have any signs for a progress. But, of course, there are some other patients which has developed uh, metastasis or even a local recurrence following the treatment as well. The nano-knife surgery, explain that to us, please, and, and, and what does it offer the pancreatic cancer patient? Because... Without that surgery, from what I understand, the only thing that's going to happen is they're going to die. That's right. That's right. I think it's, it's, it's common that pancreatic cancer is the cancer, or, or one of the cancers, probably with the worst prognosis at all. So the only, the only choice at the moment is to resect the tumor completely, but even if you can resect the tumor completely, so long-term term survival is just uh, or it's just uh, possible in 20 to 25 percent at all, unfortunately. So even in these patients, many become in their first or future metastasis or even a local recurrence. The prognosis is very bad if you do not can resect the tumor and you have a so-called local advanced tumor mostly because the tumor is growing around the vessels, the vessel for the bowel, for the small bowel, which is called mesenteric artery or the hepatic artery, which runs to the, to the liver and is responsible for the blood, blood supply of the liver. And in these cases, which you cannot resect the tumor, uh, the only choice at the moment is uh, chemotherapy, which might be prolonged, the survival very shortly. Otherwise, there is, there is a radiation therapy, but actually without bad results as well. What so in, in these cases, with local advanced tumor, the, the irreversible electroporation, which uses short, repetitive, uh, non-term or high-energy pulses of electricity, uh, this can destroy tumor cells. 
So the electrical charge it, destroys the, the tumor cell. Yes. Yes. So you, you're under general anesthesia, you have to put in electrodes, needles, or at the direct in two or on the on the border on the tumor and uh, then you have some short pulses of electricity between the needles for several minutes yeah and these pulses destroy the tumor and leaving the surrounded tissue veins nerves and ducts unaffected so healthy cells and tissue can grow back again and regenerate within this area. Uh, Dr. Bert, is nanoknife pancreatic surgery widely available in Germany and in Europe generally? Because you know, and I don't expect you to criticize the Canadian healthcare system, but, but you do know that Mayor McMillan, Mr. Eckert, and the Ontario patient on whom you operated this week were not able to obtain nanoknife surgery for their pancreatic surgeries in this country. Yeah. So... Uh, we do it in an open fashion, and in this procedure, what's, what is very important is that you have to have a lot of experience and competence in intraoperative ultrasound, which is, which is necessary to guide the needle placement. And that's why we are the hospital in Germany which have started with that te- technique in the past. But meanwhile, in the last two years, a lot of big hospitals uh, visited us, especially university hospitals, and I know that there are some other universities which just started with the nano-knife treatment as well. So I expect that in the, in the further future, more clinics will, uh, will start with that technique. What do you need to know about a Canadian patient before you might agree to go ahead with the surgery what what has to happen so what i what i have to know is of course the exact stadium of the of the pancreatic cancer so uh, it's important that the, that the pancreatic cancer have no spread the sp- spread in other parts of the body especially in the liver or on the peritoneum it's, a, it's actually a contraindication. Of course, there are some patients, not so many, but some, which have a very long, stable run, even with some metastasis. Then you can, you can think or discuss that, that topic. But actually, it's just for local, locally advanced pancreatic cancer without any metastasis. All right. So this is the first point. Right. The second one, of course, is that the patient has to be in a in a stable condition. The general condition condition of the patient uh, must good enough to travel and to have this treatment. All right, Dr. Bert, I, th- I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. The Stralsund uh, Hospital. That's S T R A L S U N D. I'll tweet it and put it on my webpage in Germany. Dr. Matthias Bert, thank you so much, and thanks for taking care of our Canadians, Dr. Bert. No problem. All Bye. the very best, you, sir. Dr. Matthias Bert. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So what's going to happen between now and January the 20th when Donald Trump is sworn in as president of the United States, 45th president, is that the Environmental Protection Agency is going to be getting a tremendous amount of attention. And particularly last week, uh, this last week it did as Scott Pruitt, the attorney general for Oklahoma, 
was announced by Donald Trump as his candidate, his nominee, to head the Environmental Protection Agency, and left-wing media went bonkers. Oh, he's a denier, and he uh, he's attacking President Obama. Well, what Scott Pruitt did, in fact, CBC, are you listening? What Scott Pruitt did, in fact, was with other attorneys general of the United States, in combination, take to court the President of the United States and his, by decree, regulations for the Environmental Protection Agency. He didn't go through Congress. He just took his pen and he signed regulations in place. And Scott Pruitt and other attorneys general went to court and they rather effectively beat Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump bit uh, Barack Obama. Anyway, with the EPA in the news, Dr. Timothy Ball, Canadian climatologist, who challenges the United Nations and the IPCC and uh, human-induced global warming argument, Canadian climatologist Dr. Timothy Ball has been invited to go to Washington, where on Monday... He meets with Myron Ebel. Is it Tim? Is it Ebel or Ebel? How do you pronounce his name? Ebel. Ebel. So you're going to you're in Washington now, right? Right. And you're going to be meeting on Monday with Myron Ebel. Yes. The transitional head of the Environmental Protection Agency of the United States. Yes, he's going to end up being the deputy, and he's putting in place all of the things that need to be uh, changed uh, for ready when Scott Pruitt steps in as his boss. And um, I, w- I was at a conference uh, on Thursday uh, held by the Heritage Foundation at which um, Myron was there and uh, several other people that are involved in this situation. And uh, it's going to be very dramatic. Explain that to us. Yeah. Uh, and before I do that, by the way, can I just comment that um, uh, Premier Wall is, is, uh, has taken a very uh, interesting uh, change, too, because... People are tired of the conservative socialist uh, agendas, left or right. Many people are conservative on some issues and socialist on others. Very true. Well, and Wall got right. around that by creating the Saskatchewan Party, and and uh, and of course that got rid of those t- traditional labels. It happened in uh, in Australia where I was recently. They they formed a party called the One Nation Party, and you could argue that Trump effectively ran the America Party. I mean, he was with the Republicans because he needed the, the framework, but and, and it's required. But that's what's going on. But anyway, what's happening? Here no, but Tim, uh, let me just let me just stay with that for a second because that's a very good point, and it's a very important issue. And I think it would destroy a lot of the cynicism that people have, and the anger that has been welling up, and the populist movement that has been formed. If we had governments, if we had people who were elected to office, and once they're in office, they simply acted pragmatically. They didn't yep. define themselves as being left, right, middle, or wherever. They chose a pragmatic course to manage the affairs of whatever constituency they're managing. Exactly, and and it's uh, the common sense issue that Trump talks about. It's a middle middle class revolution, and it's the same thing that people, as you said, are tired of being told what to think. I mean, quite often in my public presentations, I'll start off by saying morning, and then I say, you know, you decide whether it's good or not. You're tired of being told what to think, and the reaction is just phenomenal. So, yeah, it's it's a really a middle class revolution against the elite of the left and the right. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
All right, back to uh, Dr. Tim Ball on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network. His book is uh, Human-Caused Global Warming, The Biggest Deception in History. And that's the uh, position that's gotten you into all sorts of challenging situations, Tim. But you've stayed firm with your conviction, and and now you're meeting with the incoming, or at least going to be the deputy head of the EPA yep. in, in the United States, who's the head of the transition. Now, why... Um, why you? Why, why, why do they want to talk to you? Well, because, uh, one of, as you've said, I, I've been fighting this whole uh, global warming issue and the CO2 issue all along. And, of course, the question people need to ask themselves is why did CO2 get picked out of uh, the so-called greenhouse gases and all the other gases in the atmosphere? It's less than 4% of the total greenhouse gases and yet it's become the focus of attention. And the answer is quite simple. It became the target uh, of a guy by the name of Maurice Strong, who, by the way, also is the one that destroyed the uh, energy policies in Ontario Hydro, because the same year he was appointed chairman of Hydro, he he, uh, ran the Rio Declaration in in, uh, Rio de Janeiro. And um, the the idea there was that uh, he said, in a book by a superb Canadian journalist of the old school um, by the name of Elaine Dewar. The book's called Cloak of Green. She wanted to write a book praising Canadian environmentalists, uh, Suzuki and, and Strong and so on. But the more she dug into it, the more she realized that they were using the climate issue for a political agenda. But, but Tim, why, why are you going, why were you invited to go and deal with, you know, talk to the Trump administration, to the top people who are in the EPA. Well, because uh, I've been the most, one of the most outspoken around the world. Right. And um, I was just in Australia a month ago, and um, I'm meeting, uh, we're going to be meeting with Malcolm Roberts, who was elected to the Senate in Australia. And we've been challenging the bureaucracy to say, show us the evidence. Mm-hmm. There is no evidence. The only evidence that CO2 is causing a problem is in the computer models of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And, and um, so, of course, he's the first po- politician who's actually said to the bureaucrats, show your evidence, and they couldn't do it. And the incoming head of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, yep. the Attorney General yep. of Oklahoma, as I said at the beginning, he and other dozens of other state attorneys general took President Obama to court over EPA decrees, he signed into law without going to Congress first, and they were, yep. they won most of the cases, did they not? Yes, they did, and and of course, this is one of the things that uh, Obama has done. He's end end run the uh, legislative process and the uh, Congress, and and uh, Mary McCarthy said many years ago that bureaucracy, the rule of nobody, the modern form of despotism, and of course, that was what Strong did when he set up the IPCC. He did it through the World Meteorological Organization, which put every national weather agency in the world, including Environment Canada, in control of the whole program. And of course, Strong knew that if, if the bureaucrats were telling the politicians this is the, the science problem, the politicians had to listen. Well, now we finally got some politicians uh, like Pruitt that are standing up and saying no. And by the way, Pruitt coming from Oklahoma, knows the science, because one of the few American senators that opposed this thing was Senator Inhofe. Yeah. And he's been very outspoken about it, too, yes, for a long has. time. And is he it, was at Tim, a conference on Thursday. So is that going to be a seismic shift, then, in, in the United States, 
which will impact the world in the direction taken by the UN and the 200 plus nations who've signed on, or which have signed on, to the uh, United Nations climate uh, plan. Is, is, is the United States going to really undergo a seismic shift? Oh, absolutely. They're, they're going to pull out of the United Nations climate program, the Paris Climate Conference, which, of course, was an absolute joke because it, it wasn't a binding treaty, and many countries have already abandoned it. Uh, but they're, they're going to many, pull out many, of that many, many countries so, have abandoned yeah, it, Tim? Shift. Many countries have abandoned it already? Oh, yes. They, 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 haven't, uh, they haven't got anywhere near the money that was supposed to be contributed to the Green Climate Fund. Cause I, cause I spoke Canada, with, of course, has given our $4 billion and wasted it, but that, that's another story. Uh, I spoke with Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, the, uh, yep. the, the consensus center think tank, prior to and after Paris. And he, he supports the uh, human-induced global warming argument, but he also said this UN climate plan is a colossal waste of money. Huge amounts of money, a trillion dollars or more wasted when, when you look for results because he said it's going to result in virtually nothing in the way of, uh, of temperature uh, reduction uh, on, on, on the planet. And he said what, what poor kids need in, in the third world is not solar panels, they need medicine. Well, and, and more important than that, uh, Roy, was that, um, as you know, these people have held the moral gr- high ground by saying, oh, you don't care about the planet or the children. Well, Prime Minister Modi of India uh, commissioned a panel to look at it, and he came back and said, look, you're telling us that the global temperature might go up by half a degree in 70 years, and you're not very sure of that. He said, I've got higher priorities. I've got a third of my population who have no electricity at all. So that changed the, the moral uh, uh, high ground issue and of course now you've got a, a president trump a president like trump who's going to take on the the bureaucracy and withdraw the funding because that's what's been driving it did you have any concern when al gore visited president-elect trump last week no and and um, and of course it uh, i love that you know gore and uh, dicaprio i mean the, the two great hypocrites fly in their private jets to tell us how to live but this is this is Trump, um, a superb, uh, you know, looks, uh, saying, "Hey, I'll talk to everybody," but then uh, he makes up his own mind from the facts, and and that's what he's done here. So, no, I had no concern. I, I knew what was going on behind the scenes. Are you going to have a position in the EPA? Oh no, no, I, <laughs> I'm 78 years old, and that's an important point, by the way, Roy, that they've turned the whole university and education system upside down. In the old days, it was the young professors came in and challenged the old professors who held the prevailing wisdom. Now we've got exactly the opposite. The young professors are coming in, indoctrinating in the high school system, and the, uh, it's us old professors. I mean, Fred Singer, who you might have talked to, is 92. And, and so it's the old guys that are saying, hey, this is not science. This is, this is politics. Yeah. This is pseudoscience. And, and you, you better wake up before you destroy the credibility. I, th- of I thought you were going to go to the East Anglia University uh, email scandal, which, of course, was hacking by the Russians. We all know that. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah, uh, very convenient. Um, and, 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 of course, the reason that the people do stuff through, through uh, the, the Russian uh, uh, Internet providers is they can't be traced. That, that's, it's not necessarily the Russians per se, but it's Westerners using uh, Russian Internet providers okay, give me, to put the information out there. Tim, in about 20 seconds, what are you going to tell Myron Ebell on Monday? Well, we're going to, I'm going to tell him what we need to do going forward. We need to have a campaign to educate people to uh, how they've deceived and what the deceptions are. And then um, 
basically just have the weather agencies and the World Meteorological Organization collecting data and making that data available to anybody right. that wants to do research with it. All right, Dr. Ball, good to talk to you again. Thank you very much. The book is Human Caused Global Warming, The Biggest Deception in History. Dr. Timothy Ball, climatologist, we'll talk again. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for the opportunity, Roy. All the best. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It is time for Beauties and the Beast with today, Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca, and Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, seatmate to Justin Trudeau, uh, at Michelle Simpson on Twitter. Linda Leatherdale is not with us. We're Linda Leatherdale less today. She's in Chicago, and she is angry, and, and rightly so. It seems a certain airline... With Air in Canada in its in its in its name, deposited Linda in Chicago, and well, she's kind of deposited; she can't get home. So, I could put her on the air from Chicago, but I think she'd be so mad, she'd burn up the phone lines. Though was right about now, Roy. What's that? I think when, when I saw her email, I think her flight was like now. So you know what I mean? So she she was going to be like in the air, basically. Yeah, well, maybe. But you're quite right. <laughs> she was probably a little bit afraid that she would totally lose it. Yeah, she's not happy. She's not a happy camper right now. She's not. So how are y'all doing? Y'all's doing all right. Oh, good. But Linda's experience reminded me of when I used to, when I was with CFIB, I traveled incessantly, and oh, the disappointments with Air Canada were <laughs> legion. <laughs> it was just disgusting, and, uh, and 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 very. They were so nonchalant about it, you know. That that I guess is what. Now I think that's what made her kind of crazy too. But I remember once I had a meeting with the finance minister in Ottawa, and I had a, a scheduled flight, and. I got to the airport, you know, there was no indications, and they said, oh, we've canceled it. Basically, what that meant was they didn't have enough people on board to justify having that flight. They said, oh, you can always take the one in an hour, and I said, no, I can't. I have a meeting with the finance minister, and I will miss it if I don't, if this flight that was supposedly scheduled doesn't happen. But they were so blasé. I think that the blasé part probably bugged me as much as anything. See, if you'd gone on and become a senator, as you were asked to do... You would have been calling the meetings, and you would have gone to the meetings in a Challenger jet paid for, paid for by the taxpayers. Oh, yeah, well, you would have had the Challenger jet. I didn't become a senator, Roy. <laughs> you would have had the well, Challenger said, jet no, wa- I could waiting not for look you. Myself in the mirror. <laughs> yes. Hey, Michelle, she would have had the Challenger jet waiting in the just for Catherine to get there. Oh, absolutely. So, what do you make of what do you make of? Um, we, we talked about it quite a bit. Uh, today we talked about Bradwall's confrontation with uh, Premier Prime Minister Trudeau, and uh, last night was kind of a nasty. Um, well, the, the under the undercurrent made me feel like Mr. Trudeau might jump up and start throwing elbows. Uh, what, what do you make of of uh, of the Trudeau Wall confrontation? I'm going to start with uh, with a former member of Parliament and the former seatmate of. The prime minister seems like he's got a. It just looked like his temper was ready to crack there, uh, Michelle. Well, it is because he's trying to cobble together support so that he looks good on the world stage. And when I say cobbled it together, you know, uh, Christy Clark, 
she came on board, but none of them are really strong. And I'm wondering what the quid pro quo is behind the scenes. Hmm. And I, I, I don't I don't have a sense of strength for the, the Federation getting behind this. And that would really annoy the Prime Minister. So it's about him? In my mind, yes. It's not about the policy? And the promises he made. It's a little bit of the Trump factor, right? Uh, You know, I I don't get a sense that this is a strong commitment on the part of many of the provinces. I got that sense, too. You know, and Christy Clark came out and... uh, before uh, before the uh, the news conference, and she basically said to the country, uh, I'm not going to be able to sign on to this unless British Columbia gets what it what it demands, and that is uh, fairness, that we're not going to be paying more for carbon than uh, central Canada. And uh, if, I, if we don't get that, we're not signing on. And Catherine, with literally within minutes, yeah, reports yeah, were that she'd signed on. Too, but I, I guess what gets me in all of this, and when you talk about Brad Wall... You know, do we elect our politicians to follow some kind of ideological agenda of their own choosing? Um, And and in this case, Trudeau has made a big deal about spending billions of dollars out of the country. And I don't mind. I I, I totally don't mind foreign aid. I think we have a responsibility to help people around the world, you know, that are much poorer than we are. But when I see things like missions, like, like, like military missions predicated seemingly exclusively on the pursuit of a seat on the United Nations Security Council, which the UN, for anybody, I'm sorry, but for anybody with a brain, the UN has been discredited for a very, very long time. And why we should forfeit gobs of money and all kinds of um, policy initiatives that are going to hurt Canadians to, to pursue a seat on a, on a frankly, a, a, a very superficial UN committee, a security committee that we have you know, people like Saudi Arabia and, and, and punitive regimes around the world sit on. It, it makes me crazy. And Brad Wall is doing what, in my view anyway, a, a political leader should do, which is representing the best interests of his constituents. Here, here. And, and yep. with, with particularly with the Trump election, but I laughed. I was reading the paper today, and Biden, of course, you know, the VP, lame duck, of course, at this stage of the game, but was in Ottawa, right, and doing the rounds, and everybody's genuflecting for some unknown reason. But, uh, you know, he's talking about, oh, Canada, yeah, you pursue that carbon tax. Well, the U.S. under Obama and Biden certainly did not impose a carbon tax. So hypocrites all around, in my view, and, yeah, and when uh, our economy. Go, go ahead, Michelle. And hurt Trudeau at all. Love to talk about the middle class. They're going to kill the middle class with this carbon tax. Yeah, yeah. Michelle. Absolutely. Yeah. I I can't disagree, and I think it, you know it's very disappointing to me. Again, I I'd, I'd really like to know pasting it together with this carbon tax. You know um, what it is truly going to cost us, so that it looks like total buy-in. But well, there's no, there was no, there was no financial uh, economic impact statement uh, or study done. But I just want to go back here and find um, what I, I was reading this earlier today, and I mentioned it earlier today. 
And the, the uh, Premier, Brad Wall, is calling on Prime Minister Trudeau to release an unredacted version of a secret memo, CTV News reported this, prepared for the finance minister that states carbon pricing would, quote, cascade throughout the economy and prices would increase most for goods that make intensive use of carbon-based energy. So as I said earlier, just about everything we use. So there's a secret memo, and it was uh, access to information request by Blacklock's reporter, uh, the website, that, uh, that got this out. And so... Uh, Mr. Wall said the first example he's seen showing, quote, the government might have introspectively looked at the implications of carbon pricing. So they have secret information that, uh, yeah, that the carbon tax is not going to help Canada. Well, of course it's not. Uh, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. No, no, I know, but they have. They actually have. I know. I, I've, I've they have the right I've in writing. Roy, they have it in writing. The finance department, you know, document. Yep. But one thing that is for sure is they have not done a fully comprehensive cost-benefit analysis. And what makes me laugh about this particular federal government right now, they, they talked about evidence-based right from the get-go. What a crock. They have done nothing that's been evidence-based. And this latest, you know, this carbon tax fiasco, in my view, is a classic example. There has not been any kind. And, and any decent government should do a, a proper, uh, you know, analysis of the impact of their policies. But yeah, they, they uh, listen, anybody that knows how anything operates has to realize energy prices factor into our food, our, our, our heat, we're a cold country, our, you know, our, uh, all manner of stuff. And of course it's going to cascade. How could it not yeah. cascade through our entire economy? Let me ask you both this very quickly, then we'll take a break and then we'll continue. But how, how do you see this? Because there's a framework that was agreed to yesterday by most of them. Um, how do you see this playing itself out? Because the federal government has already come back and said to Christy Clark, no, 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 you're not going to have what you said you will have, and that is British Columbia having the, the right to make an independent assessment of whether there's fairness in the system. We'll decide we're the federal government. How do you see this playing itself out five years, three years, four years from now? Let's say uh, 2019, by the time we have the next federal election, where is this issue going to be? Michelle, let oh, me it's ask gonna you. Be, it's going to be top of the charts, right? Uh, I think, you know, come January 1st, in Ontario, uh, we're going to get the first taste of, you know, how it impacts the, you know, the pocketbook in un- for Ontarians. And, you know, I, I really think it's, it's, it could be a game changer. Mm-hmm. Catherine, in my view. Okay. Well, the, yeah, I, I agree, Michelle. And the other, the other thing that we've got to realize, and and my, you know, background in economics, such as <laughs> such as it's worth, uh, tells me that we're going to have, and not just we in Canada, around the world, we have economic challenges uh, for all kinds of different reasons. Governments have spent themselves stupid everywhere in the world for for little, if any, gain at all. In fact, mostly massive debt. And, and this carbon tax and, 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 and cap and trade and, you know, whatever policies various provinces are bringing in are going to be imposed at a time where the economy is very, very fragile and we have yeah. governments up to their eyeballs in debt and, of course, as Linda would say if she were here, <laughs> households in Canada that are up to their eyeballs in debt. So I see fiasco, Roy, at the next yeah. federal election. Yeah, fiasco. I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't see how there's anything else is possible. Me neither. 
The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.